Hi, everybody. My name is Red. I'm an alcoholic. Can I see the people in the audience under one year? Good deal. I just want to see what uh, how many old-timers there are out there. Uh, there's no way in the world that I'd ever try to stand up here and tell anybody in this room whether they're alcoholic or not. I don't believe I'm qualified to do that. However, if you have to start identifying with some of these innermost feelings I'm going to try to describe, some of these symptoms of this terminal disease that I have, I would sure as hell pay attention. Because what we're dealing with here is a terminal disease. Just roll that over your tongue a couple of times. That's got kind of a final ring to it. it means that if you continue to use and abuse the mind-altering drug alcohol, and don't let anybody ever kid you that alcohol is not a drug. Alcohol falls right in the drug category with the ethers and the anesthetics. It's one of the oldest known drugs to man. And it's probably been used and abused by a man longer than any other drug. And for sure, it's killed more men and women than any other drug. I used it, and I abused it over a period of time, regardless of how long it took, until I actually broke my tolerance to it. And if you're new or fairly new and you're wondering why alcohol has been giving you so much trouble physically, it's because you've become allergic to the drug alcohol. When old Red drinks alcohol, I break out in spots. Spots like Acapulco, Las Vegas. <laughs> in other words, once I pick up the first drink of that mind-altering drug, I can no longer predict my behavior. And if you've been having trouble along those lines, I'll guarantee you that today you're in the right place. This physical allergy that I developed to this drug is not necessarily what makes it the killer that it is today. There's a mental side of this disease, and it's the real serious one. It's called the obsession of the mind. And it's triggered, incidentally, by the first drink of that mind-altering drug that you pick up that tells you that this time it's going to be different. This is the time I'll be able to predict. This is the time I'll be able to control. This is the time it's going to work for me like it always used to. <clears throat> See, if you be alcoholic like Red, and you pick up that first drink, you trigger your obsession to drink. In the alcoholic, it immediately sets up a compulsion to drink, and you're going to end up, maybe not today, maybe not even this week, but once you trigger that obsession, once you set up that compulsion, you're going to end up in another devastating bout with this mind-altering drug in which you're just one step closer to the insanity and death <clears throat> that Sheen was talking about a minute ago when he read from that portion of Chapter 5 from the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. So the whole idea, the whole concept, if you're new or fairly new, of the fellowship called Alcoholics Anonymous is to teach us on a daily basis how to stay away from that first drink. You know, the first hundred guys and a gal that were able to do this successfully 
a day at a time for a year, got together and they wrote down what they had done. They called it the Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous. And i got to believe that that first hundred guys and a gal had to be spiritually led. Because over a period of the last 30 years that Red has been sober a day at a time, I have never found myself in a situation that I couldn't find the solution to in that Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous before was necessary for me to go back out there and pick up that first drink. And almost all the answers come in those 12 suggested steps that were read a minute ago. Those are the suggested steps to recovery used by that first hundred guys and a gal that were able to stay sober a day at a time for a year. If you are paying any attention at all and she read them, they are suggested steps to recovery. But I can guarantee you that there's not a guy or a gal in a room like this this morning with any length of sobriety at all that ever had them just suggested to them. You're going to have to take them. You're going to have to do the best you can with them on a daily basis for the rest of your life if you want to become a survivor. Take a look around you in a room like this this morning, and what you see are the survivors of a terminal disease a disease from which there is no cure, a progressive disease that's going to continue to get worse for the rest of your life, whether you drink or not. If you wonder why Red's standing up here this morning still yapping about the same old thing after 30 years of sobriety, it's because it's a hell of a lot more important for me to stay sober today than when I was in that first 30 or 60 or 90 days or that first year. And you see, my disease has continued to progress. I had a very dear buddy with 22 years trial not too long ago. That lady started to drink at 10 in the morning, and by 4 that afternoon she was dead. Just six hours for the allergy of alcohol to wipe her right off the face of this earth after 22 years of sobriety. I said a minute ago, regardless of how long it took. I say that from podiums anymore because as I look at these audiences, they keep getting younger on me all the time. I think probably it's because I'm getting so damn old. I don't know. But a lot of times, I think you think they got here too soon. And if you're thinking like that, my God, forget it. The average age of death today of the guy or the gal with a disease called alcoholism is down to 37. Take a look around you. You see a lot of us old jokers still staggering around. So you know how many kids have got to be dying to bring it down to anything like that. It's not extraordinary at all anymore for somebody to go through the gates of insanity and death before their 16th birthday. Couple with some of that crap that's out there on the street this morning, pushing this progression along, it's not hard to pack 20 years of hard drinking into four or five. So if you are in a room like this this morning, for God's sake, try to pay attention to some of these symptoms I'm going to try to describe. Some of these innermost feelings, and maybe... Just maybe you might save yourself a lot of hell right here on earth. And I'll get off of this bleeding deacon kick and qualify myself as an alcoholic. I, I like to get those licks in because sometimes we get carried away with these war stories and we forget what the real basis of this program is all about. I didn't do any drinking at an early age. I had an obsession. I had an obsession that I wanted to fly. I wanted to fly the fastest airplanes ever built. 
I had a real drawback. I was born back in what they call the Depression years. I know a lot of you aren't even old enough to remember them. I have a feeling you might have had a little touch of them here lately, but, you know, things were tough. I know my chances weren't that great. I started investigating. Seemed to be my only chance would have to be the military. Except back in those days, we didn't have an Air Force, per se. It was part of what was called the Old Army Air Corps. I finally even get into it. I was going to have to have two years of college and a senatorial appointment to the academy. I knew the money wasn't going to be there for that college education due to the times. I was no great student, but I was a big kid. I figured I could do it athletically. I stayed clean all the way through high school. I was out for football and basketball. I was lucky enough to win my football scholarship to Colorado State University. I wangled my two years of college that way and got my senatorial appointment. And they sent me to Randolph Field, which was the old Army Air Corps Academy. They kept me real busy for the rest of my training, and through that period of my life, booze was no problem. I just didn't use it. I graduated as a second lieutenant back in the old Army Air Corps just prior to us getting into World War II. I see a few guys sitting out there this morning can probably remember how unprepared we were for that hassle. Our dads were supposed to fight one to end them all, and Congress had never seen too fit to approach the kind of a show we've got today. We got tossed into that North African campaign over there against a bunch of guys who had been sitting there practicing for a couple of years, and they got real good at what they were doing. We were strictly under-trained and for sure under-airplane. I found myself in a situation on that first tour, which a lot of times we were putting up 25 against 200. And we were getting the hell kicked out of us. I came back off of one of those raids very early in that first tour. And that particular day, we only got eight back out of the 25. Now, I think an awful lot of you can identify with adrenaline, Mother Nature's drug usually triggered by fear, fear of death, fear of failure, fear of the unknown. You get a near miss out here on a freeway, you handle it real good. You get a half mile down the road, you can't keep your foot on the accelerator. Now, that's adrenaline. I've been in nothing but an adrenaline-type situation for about six hours. I was standing in an interrogation line waiting to go in to talk to him about what had happened. And old Red was shaking. I was shaking and never bone in my body. Now, I wasn't really too worried about adrenaline shakes. I'd had them before. You stand there and wait for that football to come down with that 250-pound lineman about to nail you, and you'll quiver. I don't give a damn who you are. But you'd get in the game, and you'd get over it. And I knew I'd get over it. Because this flight surgeon standing there looking at me, wasn't that sure? He says, what's the matter, Red? I said, nothing. I'll be all right. He looked at me for a few minutes. He says, young man, I got just what you need. Now, I had never paid any attention to that medicinal table that they had set up there in operations. But on it, they had about a half a dozen open fifths of what they called medicinal whiskey. Think about that for a few minutes. Whiskey is a medicine. He stored and picked up a water glass, and he poured me about two fingers, and he said, Here, drink this. I looked at him and thought, I really don't want it. And he looked me right in the eye, and he says, Young man, I prescribe it. Man, I hung on to that for the next 20 years. <laughs> I picked that stuff up, turned it up, drank it, walked on into interrogation, and if you've got an alcoholic personality like I have, I think you know what happened. Man, that stuff sat there and flowed out there to those fingertips and out there to those toes, and all of a sudden I'm sitting there real comfortable. I looked down and they were roped. You know, ten minutes before I hadn't been able to light a cigarette or pick up a cup of coffee. 
Ten minutes down the line with a half a glass of booze in there, I'm looking at them and they're frozen just like they are this morning. And literally, Old Red never shook at anything again for the next 20 years. I thought I had found the elixir of life. I really believed it. And booze worked that well for me for a long time. Even after it started doing to me, it was still due for me. I soon found to get the full benefit out of it. I had to keep recreating the kind of a situation I'd had that first day. Probably combat's the best adrenaline builder I ever found before or since. And I became a combat freak. I stayed three years and two tours of duty. I got good at what I was doing. I learned to live on that knife's edge, that fast lane. Booze was always there at the end of the day to handle anything that I couldn't. God, I'd come in at night, see guys sitting on the edge of their beds worried about going the next day. You know, and I'd look at them and think, geez, I wish they could find alcohol. It never dawned on me that it worked so much better for me than it did for them. I went right on through World War II. I was back here in the States. I probably should have been able to lay that medication down and go on about my business. But in retrospect, I think I started running into one of the first symptoms of this disease. Some of you might identify with it. It's called justification. Rather than laying it down, I went looking for a job that had some adrenaline in it. All the real good airplanes, the jet-type airplanes that we got today, were just coming off the drawing boards. They were looking for guys that had a lot of combat experience to evaluate them. I put my application in got accepted as a test pilot to the Proving Ground Command. Hell, the excitement was back. I was flying the kind of airplanes now that I'd laid on those Colorado hillsides and dreamt about when I was a kid. I was flying with the best, and I knew it. Booze was still working for me. In fact, I think it started working just a little bit too well. Proving Ground Command is Eglin Field in Florida. In fact, it still is. They got a big officer's club built right out there in the Gulf there at Fort Walton. They used to... I used to catch myself an awful lot of night hanging out at that club until 1 o'clock in the morning, you know, just kind of tranquilizing the day. And I'd know I had a 6.30 test stop. Not always. Not always for sure. But once in a while I'd wake up in that BOQ at around 10 o'clock in the morning with that cold sweat start would come to end. I'd look at my watch and say, did I or didn't I? You know, you'd pick up the phone call the sergeant said, you get everything written up they wanted this morning. Yes, sir, right down the line. You walk back down to the line and step up on the wing of that bird and the knee pad is yours. The check off is yours. Signature is yours. Geometer says you've been up to speed of sound and the only thing you can't recall is going. <laughs> now, don't kid me, it hasn't happened to you. You step out there on that porch in the morning, that car sitting in the driveway, you say, how did it get home last night? Another symptom of this disease is called blackout, the overuse and abuse of the mind-altering drug alcohol to the point that it blacks out the conscious mind. If you've got any coordination at all, you're going to get by with a mile of it. Hell, I've seen guys go for a week in a blackout. You'd never see them staggered. Yet they had no conception of where they were or what they were doing. It should just scare the living hell out of an alcoholic, and I don't believe I've ever met one that it bothered too much. We're right off the idea that, God, I must have had a good time last night. You know, we're willing to take somebody else's word for it. In the occupation that I was in, I knew it wasn't what I was looking for. I started my first feeble attempts at control. 
I'd always been a binge drinker at the end of the day. I figured if I was going to exercise control at all, I had to string it out over a longer period of time. And I think this is how an awful lot of us become daily drinkers. I gave up binge-type drinking, but I didn't give up drinking. I just strung it out over a longer period, and it worked great for a lot of years. Most of the real good airplanes I would really wanted to test were off the drawing board anyway. I was looking for something maybe had a little more kick to it, and it usually the Air Force come up with it. We found that we let way too many guys out right after World War II. They started a big recruiting campaign to get the key personnel to come back. One of the promotional aspects to come up with was the organization of what's still known today as the Air Force Demonstration Team. Probably most of you have seen that team at one air show or another around the country. You don't get sentenced to that team. You volunteer for it. I had all the qualifications. I put my application in and I got accepted. It's not all fun and games, for sure. You practice with that stuff four and a half days a week. At that time, we were flying 32 air shows around the country a year, or up to 48 now. They only let you do it for two years, and it's probably enough because it's an adrenaline-building son of a gun. But I was back flying with the best again, and I knew it. Booze was still working for me. I think it started running into another symptom about this time. Well, some of you might identify with it. It's called hangover. God, I have never found, and this is before or since, a worse place to shake a hangover than an aerobatic formation. You just think about it for a few minutes. You walk out there in the morning, that canopy comes down over you, and you're trapped. There's no way in the world you're going to stop at a corner tavern. That's for damn sure. You hook that oxygen mask across your face, and you can no longer become ill. You pull into that 18-inch interval formation and those guys just insist that you don't shake. You do a lot, and maybe you might identify with this, and it's called a deep sweat. You know, I used to sit there and wonder how come. How come something that's worked for me so well for so long is kicking me around like this? You used to try to analyze it. I mean, hell, maybe it's the life you lead, Brett. Maybe at the end of your two years if you'd resign, get out, get in civilian life, get a business going, get a family started. Do the things I'd seen my buddies do, that I could get a handle on this drinking. I always believed drives I had both feet to the gates of insanity and death, that given the right set of circumstances, I could control my drinking. I think this philosophy of self-sufficiency that we're all supposed to grow up with, every guy and every gal is supposed to be an island to themselves, is probably what helps about 14 to 16 million of those practicing alkies that are out there this morning self-medicate themselves right out of this world without ever finding what we find in rooms like this, that there is a way out. I finished my two years. I resigned. I hit civilian life. All my buddies had been out there about five and a half years ahead of me. They'd got out right after World War II. They'd gone back to school. They'd completed their educations. They had homes built, families started, positions. If you're anything like I was an alcoholic, you know what you're going to do. Double up and catch up. You know, and this is the way I hit civilian life. I went into business. I built a tri-level home. I got married. Started that family. The business I went into was immediately successful. I'd grown up in it, and I'd been in it most of my sober years. 
You guys contributed an awful lot to it in your drinking careers. It's called the auto body business. Well, that was good. I think I'd have been all right if I'd have just worked at it eight hours a day. But I was working 12 and 14, 16 hours a day. I went six days a week. And I put on two shifts. I got that trial of a home down there paid for in a short period of time. Got a trust fund started from my kids to get them through college. And hell, we're only one in three. This is the way we think. And this is the way we drive. And I'd come through those doors at night to damn beat. I could hardly hold my head up flop in that easy chair, and there was one thing I could always sell right on. Man, if there's anything you've earned yourself today, Tiger. And I was no better off than I was sweating hangovers at 30000 Strange thing happened to me about this time of my life. Old Harry Truman got his foot in his mouth and sicked us on Korea. I was telling you, we hadn't trained any fighter pilots after World War II. He found it out in a hurry, and he had to call the war worries. Got just 21 days from the day I was recalled. I looked out there and got two 500-pound napalms nailed each way again. They're saying, thick and tiger. They just went that way. I got another 100 missions to do. You know, I'm 30 years old by this time. Maybe they don't sound old, but it's getting old for a fighter pilot, especially one with a progressive disease. I had no idea that I had a progressive disease. How I was still passing Class A physicals every six months. How could I have a disease? Well, when I started to do that new hundred in Korea, something became quite evident to a red in a hurry. Those damn missions had got too long between drinks. You know, I told you I'd been a daily drinker now for an awful long time. I think these chains of alcoholism lie so lightly on our shoulders that a lot of us have no idea that they're there until we're just completely amazed. So all of a sudden we wake up one morning to the fact that we're no longer telling alcohol when we're going to drink it. Booze is beginning to tell us when we're going to drink it. I solved that situation very simply. I went over to the PX and I bought myself two 8-ounce flasks, one for each winter flight boot. Hell, it worked great. I'd use the right one going out and the left one coming home. A long time after booze started doing to me, it would still do for me. And I think a lot of you can identify with that. I think it was brought out very vividly to me. Just how hooked I was really getting. A lot about my 40th mission, I got shot up again that morning for about the umpteenth time in my life. Shell come through the bottom of the airplane right through my left leg. And it kicked it clear into my chin. And I still remember getting my foot back down on that rudder. And I could feel liquid running into that left winter flight boot. I still remember sticking my hand down there and pulling her back and thinking, hot dog, it's blood. <laughs> Only alcoholics identify with that story. <laughs> I thought they'd shot my coming home jug, and I really did. I still had 30 minutes to make it home, and I was damn glad to find my medication still intact. This is the way alcohol was letting me think. I finished my hundred. I got back here to the States. I got to think, you know, maybe, Red, you could find yourself a flying job far enough away from booze. Maybe you can get someplace where it's not so readily available. As usual, the Air Force took care of it. We were just starting to build the radar sites up across the Arctic Circle. I went north. If any of you are thinking about that, my God, forget it. 
I spent a year in Thule, Greenland, where the warmest day we had was 23 below. So cold weather will not do it. It just won't go. I finally volunteered to come on back down to Harmon, that big Seagram's distillery there in Newfoundland, to pick up the monthly ration of booze for that base up there. Thule is only about 450 miles from the North Pole. I brought down a twin-engine airplane that afternoon. I loaded her clear down with those big 40-ounce Canadian jugs of that CC and VO. I started back up there that night, and I got into one of the damnedest Arctic storms I was ever in, and I lost an engine. It's one of those nights I called Air Sea Rescue, and those bastards wouldn't even come out. I fought that thing all night, and I got into Thule just at Arctic dawn, and the whole base was down there to meet me. I got to think, and then they're great they're that worried about over it. <laughs> I rolled back that window, and the first thing they asked me is, you didn't salvo that load, did you? It had never even crossed my mind. I don't know whether you guys had this problem or not. As a daily drinker, I was developing a hell of a smell problem. You know, when you drink booze all day like I did, you begin to smell like booze all day. I got to thinking, you know, maybe if I get back to Europe where they got that wine on the table and they eat a lot of garlic, that at least I'd blend in better. I volunteered for fleet line service, which is the airline that resupplies NATO. I went back over, and you know, my northern run was Brussels, Amsterdam, Copenhagen, Oslo, and Stockholm. Now, those are progressive disease towns, I'll guarantee you. They never got better. I was picking up a lot of rank over the years. They kept trying to trap me for command. They got it done. They jerked me back here to the States, sent me through staff and command school, gave me an air defense group, stuck me up here at Hamilton, just outside of San Francisco. God, now i got 800 men on my command. You know, I hear my airplanes roll every morning. It seemed like invariably I'd look out there at that outer office of mine and that adjutant would always have about a half a dozen of my boys sitting out there waiting for me to talk to. I found an awful lot of my mornings used to be taken up counseling. These kids have been in town getting themselves into all kind of trouble, most of it drinking. I had a system. I had an eyes-on safe alongside of my desk. I used to keep a 40-ounce jug of Smirnoff red vodka in there with a hooked glass straw. And every time he'd go out to get one of those boys, I'd hit the safe. Usually by noon, I was giving some pretty damn good lectures on the evils of drink. I also knew that I was going to get in a hell of a lot of trouble sooner or later. Air Force had always been awful good to me all my life. I figured I sure as hell owed them a lot more than I was giving them. And again, I decided to resign. This time it didn't work. My resignation got as far as Air Defense Command at Colorado Springs. They reviewed it and bounced it. They bounced it with a recommendation that we sent to Parks, which is one of the big Air Force hospitals, for three-month psychoanalysis. They couldn't figure out why a 15-year-life colonel all of a sudden wanted to throw his command in. I couldn't very well go in and tell them why. If I had any other terminal disease in this world, I'd have been in there on that doctor's doorstep every morning, laying the symptoms on him, you know, telling him, God, Doc, this is where it hurts. That you can drag that dying alcoholic into that same doctor's office, reading that same set of questions, 
when it comes to that one where it says, do you drink excessively? Oh, a couple of beers now. <laughs> Self-denial, the greatest symptom of all the symptoms I've been trying to describe, our complete lack of our innermost selves to get honest enough to admit that alcohol is just taking us to pieces. This was a lot of years ago. It was before alcoholism was recognized by the military as a treatable disease. In fact, most doctors didn't even recognize it at that time. I had to spend that three months on that psychiatric ward. Now, it was the first help that was ever offered to me as an alcoholic. I don't believe that psychiatry could possibly help the practicing alcoholic due to the self-honesty bit. Now, don't get me wrong. I don't believe there's anybody in here this morning that probably psychiatry couldn't help just a little bit. i got to tell you my psych story. It fits in with mine down the line. This guy had an obsession. He had an obsession. He had a purple screw for a belly button. Now, he knew it was an obsession, but every time he looked down, there's a bright purple screw right where his belly button should be. He finally goes to this shrink, and he says, Doctor, you think you could help me? He says, I... Haven't had a good night's sleep for months worrying about this. The doc looked him over and he says, yeah, I, says, I think I can help you. He says, I just got this new potion in. He says, I want you to take it home with you. Get in your best pajamas, open your bedroom window, drink this stuff down. He says, you're going to drift right off to sleep. And it'll float a little pink cloud. It'll have a little Yalheim screwdriver on it. He says, unscrew that thing, lay it up there, let it float out. He says, you get your night's sleep. The guy looked at him and says, I'm going to try it, Doc. He went running home. He went through the routine, and it worked. In floated the little cloud. He unscrewed it. Out it floated. Got the night's sleep he'd been looking for for months. Woke up the next morning completely refreshed. Covered her up. Finally got his nerve up. Took a quick look. And sure enough, normal belly button. He was just elated. He jumped out of bed, and his ass fell off. The reason I tell you this story is it's exactly the way that psychiatry worked for Red. You know, they would fix me up. They'd say, you're ready, Tiger. I'd jump out there and off it would fall again. I spent three months on that psychiatric ward. I had three appointments with those doctors a week. Now, the base, I had open post. The base club opened at 12 o'clock noon, and it closed at 1 o'clock in the evening. I used to open that club up every day at 12 o'clock and close it at noon. In that three-month period, those doctors never saw me that I wasn't bombed out of my mind. And yet in that whole medical evaluation, there's not one mention of the word alcoholism. You see, they didn't even recognize it as a treatable disease at that time. They did let me out. Families long since got tired of my shenanigans and been on their way. My folks had moved out here to the West Coast, and they'd been real successful. Had a big home over there on top of Palo Verde Hills there behind San Pedro down there in the L.A. area. I figured I'll get up there in that big den with that boob tube and that beautiful view of Los Angeles Harbor, all the pressures that I've been drinking at through a couple of wars are off my back. I'm going to get a handle on this drinking. I lasted about two weeks up there, and I was going out of my gourd. It was one of those big wooden globes, one of those Columbus-type globes sitting in that den. I kept looking at that thing and thinking, you know, maybe, Red, you've never taken the true geographic. I'd always been around guys that could cover for me, guys that were in combat with or gone to school with. I figured if I'd get someplace in this world far enough away from anybody that knew me, 
that I'd have to do it on my own. I run my finger up over the meridian to see what was on the other side of the world from Palo Verde. If you want to try it, it's Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. I called the personnel manager of PWA, who I knew real well. I knew that they hired for those guys over there. One month later, I was flying captain on Ethiopian Airlines. Halfway around the world again, nobody knows Red. All he knows is he's got lots of flying time, and he's qualified. I gave it my best shot. I don't know whether any of you guys tried white knuckle sobriety or not, but I stayed sober a year on guts, and if you're thinking about it, my God, forget it. It was the most miserable year I ever spent in my life before or since. There wasn't a waking moment in that year that I didn't want to drink. I'd wake up in the middle of the night and have to go down to the kitchen, pour myself one, set it on the table and sweat it. Not drink it. Prove yourself you got guts enough, Red. I'd go to a movie and I'd have to get up in the middle of it and go to the bar and have the bartender pour me one. Not drink it. Sit there and sweat it. That's the way I went through the year. At the end of it, I figured, well, there's one thing you proved, Tiger. At least you're not an alcoholic. And I went out to celebrate. My last fight, I don't remember fighting after that. You come up that hill to gradually hit that level off period. You finally get over on the backside of that alcoholic curve. And I'll guarantee you, once you hit the backside of that curve, you're going to start donating to the pot to reserve your right to use this drug. Jobs, security, homes, things that we worked hard for most of our lives. You're going to find yourself tossing them into the pot to reserve your right to use this drug. Families, loved ones, people that have stuck by us through hell and high water. All of a sudden, we're tossing them into the pot to reserve our right to use this drug. You want to hang out there as long as Red did. You're going to get things like integrity, self-respect, anything that means anything to you on the back side of that curve. If you want to hang out, you've got to donate. I used to look down and say, if I ever got like that joker, I would quit. You know, pretty soon I'd be just like him, and I'd say, I mean that one down there. <laughs> down that hill I went. It wasn't too many years before they quit renewing my airline contract. Africa about this time, most of those colonial powers were going independent. I found it was a hell of a demand for the kind of flying I'd been doing most of my life. All of a sudden, I thought I'd already shooting people for money. You know, this has a funny effect on your insides. I always had at least principles to fight for through a couple of wars. Now I'm just sitting out there shooting the guys to support a habit that I don't seem to be able to do anything about. There's a lot of other pressures that can be put on practicing alcoholics, as all of you know. I told you I'd been sealed of an air defense group that helped build the radar sites. I'd had a top-secret clearance all my military career. Now I'm flying for a foreign government. You hear things like OSI and CIA. You don't think too much about it, but I can guarantee you they're out there. And they can give a practicing alkie fits. They know who's paying it and how much. They know where you're banking it. They're opening your mail. Maintenance isn't worth a damn. You don't get shot down in that part of the world. All these pressures are building. I'm doing the one thing that's always worked. I'm pumping that damn booze, and man, it got worse. It finally got so bad that they didn't quit hiring me for it. I ended up, I'm sure as hell not proud of this, 
flying through mountain passes with my landing lights on railroad tracks for navigation. Now my flights are low-level overwater. My landing fields are deserted beaches and they're flashlight lit. I have a feel you know what I'm doing. I'm smuggling because that's where the money is. It's where all the fears are, too. If I get caught doing what I'm doing now, I know they'll put me away for life. And yet alcohol took all those choices away. And if you want to hang out there as long as Red did and you live, that's exactly what it's going to do to you. I kept right on with that kind of a crappy existence, so I finally got so bad they even quit hiring me for it. I was back here in the States, 41 years old. This probably was about as unemployable as a guy could really get. I figured there wasn't too many things I hadn't tried a couple times in this world. If I couldn't, at least I could get with it. I bought myself 10 cases of those 40-ounce jugs of that Smirnoff Red Vodka, and I stuck them in that hillside over there in Palo Verde. And I went on what was supposed to be old Red's last drunk. This was 31 years ago, before detox or care centers or hospitals that have anything to do with an alcoholic. People over on the side of that hill had no idea what was wrong with me. Hell, I'd have been out there among them since I was 18. They'd really never been around me that often. That drunk lasted 64 days. The last 30 of it, I hadn't eaten. My normal weight's about 220. I was down to 138 pounds of emaciation. Most of that was liver. I think God stepped into my life about this time. Those people picked a doctor out of the phone book to see if he'd make a house call. And you know that doctor actually made that house call? I know today that he didn't do it because of his Hippocratic oath. They happened to pick one that's a member of a fellowship called Alcoholics Anonymous. That doctor was making the 12-step call of what he was doing. He came out to that house and told those people what I was up against. Said he'd seen some amazing recovery on a program that he himself was trying. That he was going to do what he could for me physically. And he was going to leave some names and if I asked for help to call you. I don't remember ever getting that well. He thought I was going to die and they thought I was going to die. So I guess they just called you. Because my first recollection of you sober guys were the guys sitting on the edge of that bed. And you know, they literally nursed old Red back to health and they started hauling me into rooms like this. And man, I was a tongue-chewing, wet-brained, babbling idiot, I'll guarantee you, for that first 30 days. But thank God you read this portion of chapter 5 like Shane did tonight. Because I think that's what saved old Red's life. I wasn't capable of hearing too much. I could hear, just don't drink today. And they'd read those 12 suggested steps. All of a sudden, setting that old maritime meeting over there in Wilmington one Saturday night about 30 days sober, they had just read that portion of chapter 5, and it all come crashing in, what I'd been trying to identify with. See, for many years, drunk or sober, the only thing that had ever kept me alive in those complicated airplanes I'd been flying was called a checklist. A list in which everything I had to do to get through one flight was written down. I'd never gone near a bird in my life, drunk or sober, that I hadn't used that checklist from the time I walked up until the time I walked away. And it'd get me through just one flight. Sitting there that night, all of a sudden it dawned on me what 24 hours really is. 
24 hours is just one flight in life. And those 12 suggested steps are the checklist to keep you from ever having to go back out there and pick up that first drink of booze. I've been using that 12-step checklist on a daily basis now for the last 30 years. I've never found it necessary to go back out there and pick up another drink of alcohol, tranquilizing, sedating, elevating pill, haven't had to smoke any funny grass. I've probably been as close to chemically free as a guy can stay in this modern world, and I owe it all to you guys. On my own, I've given it my best shot, and I've never scratched the surface. Everything I've been talking about this morning, I've learned in rooms like this. If you got your hand up recently and you said, my name is whatever it is, and I'm an alcoholic, you pretty well got that number one step nail. That's what I'm talking about. We admit that we are powerless over alcohol, that our lives are unmanageable. And that's just about what you're able to do when you hit your feet in front of a bunch of your peers and say, my name is Red, and I'm an alcoholic. If you're anything like I was, though, and you hit that step number two, that thing will just jar the living hell out of you. There's a real inference in that step. I'm going to have to ask a power greater than red to restore me to sanity. You know, before I can take that step, i got to admit I'm nuts. i got to admit I had to be. Where else would you find a guy completely allergic to a drug that if he continued to use it was going to kill him that went out there and pumped it down a couple fifths a day. There's got to be all kind of insanity in us before we ever come through these doors. Don't let it shake you too much. I'm going to tell you my insanity story. For years, by the time I'd get my shop clothes in Long Beach and get out to Buena Park and change clothes and then double back up to places where I was always speaking up, I was always driving like a son was going to get there in time. This guy was doing the same thing. He was on the freeway. His off-ramp was coming up. He thought he had it nailed. He hit the off-ramp, had less than 10 minutes to make the meeting. He got about a couple blocks down the street and blew a tire. He jumped out, and it's flat. He said, well, maybe I can still make it. He ran around, jerked his trunk open, got his spare out, jacked his car up, flipped his lug nuts off, put them in a hubcap behind him. He just set the spare up. A car come whizzing along behind him, caught the edge of the hubcap, and flipped all his lug nuts right out in the weeds. And he's frantic. He's out there beating these weeds to death, and it's dark, and he can't find them. He knows he's going to be late. All of a sudden, he heard a voice. He hadn't paid any attention where he'd rolled to a stop. He looked up, and he was parked right in front of an institution for the alcoholically insane. One of the inmates had been sitting up there on the fence watching all this. He says, hey, mister. The guy says, I haven't got time to talk to you right now. He says, I'm in a hell of a hurry. The guy sitting up on the fence says, yeah, I've been sitting up here watching you. He says, I figured you must be. He says, hell, if I was in that big a hurry, he said, I'd take the other three hubcaps off, take a lug nut off of each wheel, put that thing on there and get going. Look at him and says, oh, my God. He says, that's the answer. He says, how did you come up with that? I thought you were insane. And the guy says, I am, but that's no sign of stupid. The point I'm trying to make is this. All of us, when we come through those doors, are a wee bit bent out of shape. We've been out there kicking ourselves around for a hell of a long time. The mere fact that we come looking for help sure as hell proves that we're not stupid. This is where the answers are in rooms like this. 
guys and gals sharing their experience, strength, and hope with each other that we can solve this common problem. I hit that step number three, and I think all of you know what happened. I run into the word God. I went running for my sponsor, and I said, Mac, is that the God they're talking about? He says, yeah, Rick. I said, I haven't got a chance. i got 250,000 years in purgatory, dude, before I could even start this program. He said, you didn't read the small print, sorry. And I said, what's that? He said, the God of your understanding. I knew I was going to have to turn my will over to a power greater than old Rick, because I had really loused it up. And you know, all of a sudden it dawned on me that there was a power right there in front of me. You guys. Group power. Man, I could believe in group power. I've been tucked up in groups all my life. As long as I was in the group, I had all the firepower in the world. It was only when I was out there as a straggler I was going to get my ass shot down. I started hanging with the winners, the guys that had some time on this program. I started listening to them. I started picking their brains. And they taught me. They taught me real good about this power that today old Red calls God. My sobriety on a daily basis is a gift from you guys and God. What I do with that sobriety is my gift back to him. You see, he's having me become part of that pipeline of information started with that first hundred guys and the gal. The only way I can keep it is to keep giving it away. I gotta be standing at this podium or at the door with my hand out when the new guy or the new gal comes in. I gotta share my experience, strength, and hope with them, like they did with me when I come through that door. This is the fellowship called Alcoholics Anonymous. I got down to the end of that checklist, said having had a spiritual awakening. And you know, nothing had happened. I got to go to a convention about my first 60 days. I heard an old boy from the podium, and he sounded spiritual. He sounded spiritual every time I ever heard him after that. He passed away a few years back down in Laguna. Most of you have probably heard of him or heard through his book, A New Prayer of Glasses. I took him aside after that meeting. I said, come on, Chuck, tell me about spiritual. He says, I'm glad you asked, Red. He said, I did a lot of research. He said, I come up with a definition. I said, that's what I'm looking for. Something this alky brain can handle. He said, Red, spiritual is that which is not material. You know, I started reading this big book of Alcoholics Anonymous real conscientiously to find out what that first hundred guys and the gal had in mind when they put that in there. And you know, the more I read it, the more I became convinced what they were talking about were my attitude and my emotions. These are the things that had always driven me back out there to pick up that first drink. Alcohol was merely a symptom of what was wrong with me. My attitude prior to finding you guys, when I'd step out there and take a look at the day, was, oh God, another day. And they'd been that way for a long, long time. What you guys have taught me is to step out there and take a look at the day and say, thank God, another day. See, I've been granted one I shouldn't have had. The average age of death when I come through those doors was 41, and I told you a minute ago how old Fred was. I just barely snuck in. It means that every day that I've been granted over the last 30 years is a gift from you guys and God. And you can't get too ungrateful for a situation like that. 
I get up to a podium like this, I get right up on cloud nine. I got to tell you my attitude story. This guy walked into a barber shop not too long ago. He was right up on cloud nine. The barber got him in the chair and he says, what are you so happy about? The guy says, I got a 747 reservation going to Rome. He said, I'm going over there and eat some of that good Italian food. He said, I even got an audience with the Pope. The barber looked at him and says, what's the matter with you, man? He says, that 747 is the roughest airplane in the sky. He says, you'll be airsick all the way over there. He says, you start eating that Italian food and Montezuma's revenge is going to seem mild. He says, you know the Pope isn't going to have time for a commoner like you. The guy had gone in there right on cloud nine. Now, he came out after that haircut right down in the pits. You know, right where those norms usually drop me. He didn't see him for 30 days. All of a sudden, the guy come bounding in, and he is really out of sight this time. He got him back in the chair. He says, what now? He says, I made the trip. Says, that 747 is the smoothest airplane in the sky. He said, there wasn't a ripple going over. He said, I gained 10 pounds eating that Italian food. He said, it was the best I ever had. He said, I even got my audience with the Pope. I got to kneel at his feet, kiss his ring, and he says, would you believe he even had a question for me? The barber looked at him and says, what could he have possibly asked you? He says, where did you get that lousy haircut? <laughs> Don't let them tear you down. I can't guarantee you get your wives, your husbands, your kids back, your health back, your jobs back. But I can guarantee you that those 12 suggested steps are going to give you the tools to start digging into that pile of stuff you brought through the door. And if you'll use them as tools, I can also guarantee you that you're going to start to uncover in a hurry something that you can live with pretty comfortably for as long as you want to hang around this program a day at a time. So much for attitude. How about emotions? Five different places in this big book of Alcoholics Anonymous that mentions the one thread, the one trend, that seems to run through all our personalities as alcoholics is a little thing called emotional immaturity. How could a 41-year-old fighter jock be emotionally immature? I had a hard time buying that in the beginning. I don't today. Over a period of the last 30 years, it's probably the one character defect that I've had to work on almost constantly. I looked up that word immature in the dictionary, and you know what it said? Childlike. From the very first time that that flight surgeon handed me that drink of booze in that interrogation line many years ago, my emotions had shut down. I'd never had to grow up. I'd always had a crutch. It's brought out very vividly to me every Saturday morning out here in Buena Park where I live exactly what they're talking about. This has been going on for 30 years. Every Saturday morning, along about 9 o'clock, there's a knock on a red front door. It's all the kids in the neighborhood gathered out there on my lawn wanting to know if I can come out and play. And I do. Every once in a while my wife comes to the door and they look up and say, oh, it's Red's mother. Those of you that know her know she outranks me three years and ten months on this program and never lets me forget it, for sure. 
I could never figure out how I got along with kids so well. I have all my life. I realized today that the reason I always had is because their emotions were my emotions. You see, I've never had to talk down to them. I talk directly to them just like I'm talking to you emotionally, immature jokers, and you know what I'm talking about. Did you ever see one of those little guys get mad? He gets red-faced, fist-clenched, drawn back, swinging, angry, mad. Now, who does this remind you of? <laughs> He'll pick up a resentment and he won't talk to the rest of us for the rest of the day. He's going to punish us. Anybody identifying with those kind of emotions? You see, it's no wonder that we grew up together in rooms like this. Hell, I've gone back through my teens with those kids. Some of those kids, they used to put their wheels on their skateboards. Now I'm helping Port and relieve their automobiles. And we still got a good thing going. And when they got in trouble with that crap that's out there on the street today, they knew where to bring themselves and their buddies. And I've had a lot of luck in that direction. And I'd have missed it. I'd have missed it all if it hadn't been for you guys. I still have a lot of trouble with that step number 11. You know, the difference between Red's will and God's will. I don't know whether you guys have this trouble or not. It seems like after 30 years, Red's will and God's will will kind of start to come together. But they just stay just like that all the time. I heard a story over in Vegas that I've got to share with you. It kind of illustrates what I'm talking about. This guy must have been an alpha. He'd been out of work all during that slow period we had. He finally got himself a real good job in a supermarket, in the produce department, keeping all the lettuce and tomatoes and late vegetables and all that stuff laid out, wet down, looking good. All of a sudden, one afternoon, this guy walked in and cornered him. He says, young man, I want to buy half a head of your lettuce. And the guy looked at him and he says, I'm sorry, sir. He says, we don't sell half a heads of lettuce. Now, I've been dealing with the public for the last 30 years. I know how irritating they can get when they want to be. This guy stayed right in the middle of him. He says, hey, I'm a bachelor. Look at the price of that stuff. He says, it'd just go to waste. Sell me a half a head of lettuce. The kid stuck with his guns. He says, no, sir, we don't sell it that way. The guy wouldn't let up. He says, why don't you go back and see your store manager and see if he won't sell me a half a head. By this time, the kid is steaming, and I can understand those kind of emotions. He goes charging back into that store manager's office. He says, there's some half-assed character out here that wants to buy half a head of lettuce. He turned around, and the guy had walked in right behind him, and he says, and this gentleman here would like to buy the other half. The difference between Red's will and God's. I don't know if you guys have this trouble or not. I don't have too much trouble after 30 years turning my will and my life over to the care of God. But you know, I still have an awful lot of trouble leaving it there. When it starts getting good, guess who wants to take the credit for it? And it don't work that way. I want to close a little incident that happened to me down at the shop a couple of years ago just before I retired. I got up one morning. I had a whole bunch of situations down there that morning. I really didn't want to go down and handle. I'm still pretty good at procrastination. I hem and hawed around that damn house until I finally hit that 91 freeway going to Long Beach running late. Now, even to this day, when Red hits the freeway running late, strange things begin to happen. People get cut out. Horns get blown. Fingers get given. You know, I'm building a head of steam, and I haven't even got to work yet. 
And whenever I start to act that way, that old monster inside of me begins to lash. That one that used to whip me right over to that corner tavern. Man, i got to run that checklist, and I hit that turn it over button, and it's froze in the down position. I haven't turned anything over to God. I talk to him just like I'm talking to you guys. But okay, sir, I said, what's wrong? I'll just go down and do the footwork. You handle it. I got down there that morning. None of that stuff that I'd anticipated ever did come in. Everything that did come in was just as smooth as glass. It was a nice day. It was a nice day all day long. And I jumped in that same car that night, headed back out 91 on my way home. Guess who I'm patting on the back for the way I handled that situation? And all of a sudden, it dawned on me what I was doing, and I busted out laughing, and I looked over, and the guy's driving on each side of me on the freeway or tuning radios, trying to find out what the hell I'm listening to. <laughs> but it reminded me of a story that I used to use back in my combat days about credit, where credit's due. I had six clusters to my DFC, and when I'd wear them, guys would look at me, and they'd say, where in the hell did you ever get those, Red? I used to have a stock answer that I got pushed in the pond. But the story goes like this. It's about a Texas rancher. Had one of the biggest spreads in Texas. Thousands of acres, big old Olympic-sized pool, barbecue area, rambling ranch house. Just as a conversation piece, he built himself about 150 yard across alligator pond. And he filled it with the meanest damn alligators you could find in the world over. These big old 15-foot snappers. And he didn't feed them too good. He kept mean out there. All these guys got out there one afternoon drinking these booze and telling these war stories. And this Texan finally got a little tired of them. He says, I'll tell you what I'll do. He says, any of you guys really want to prove your courage, anybody will go down there and swim across that alligator pond. He says, I'll give you my daughter's hand in marriage, a million dollars or a ranch like mine. Figured he'd shut them up for good. He no more turned his back and he hears all this commotion. He turned around and here this guy is swimming out across the pond and he is moving out. He's leaving a rooster tail. He made it. Texting around helped him out. He says, I've never seen such a display of courage. He says, I'll stick with my bargain. He says, I imagine you want my daughter's hand. The guy shook his head and he says, oh, no, sir. He says, I'm already married. He looked at him and he says, well, he says, then it's got to be the million dollars. Guy shook his head and he says, No, sir. He says, I have an income for life. He looked at him and he says, Well, he says, then it's got to be the ranch like mine. Guy shook his head and he says, No, sir. He says, My daddy left me one in his will. He says, Well, what do you want? He says, I want the name of that son of a bitch that pushed me in the pond. <laughs> You've been a great audience, gang. Just remember, every single one of us in this room today got pushed into that pond of alcohol. Probably no human power could have ever got us out of there. God can and he will if he is sought. May you find him now. May that power watch over us all a day at a time through the eternity of our spiritual existence. I sure want to thank you guys for letting me share.